0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: On March the 8th, 2015, Eric Holder, then Attorney General of the United States, addressed a congregation gathered at the Brown Chapel AME Church in Selma, Alabama.
0: Half a century ago, it was said that nothing could stop the marching feet of a determined people. Well, today, 50 years after Bloody Sunday, we stand together once again as a people. We are no less determined and we will march on.
1: They were there to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, the day in 1965, when hundreds of civil rights campaigners on a march from Selma to the state capital Montgomery were brutally assaulted by police. That moment paved the way for the Voting Rights Act, the landmark civil rights era ruling outlawing voter suppression. But on that day in 2015, Mr Holder, America's first African-American attorney general, said that half a century on, The fight for black and minority voters was far from over.
0: We will march on until the self-evident truth of equality is made real for every American. We will march on until every citizen is afforded his or her fundamental right to vote. We will march on toward that bright horizon to the day when all Americans, young or old, rich or poor, famous or unknown, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter who they love, Has an equal share in the American dream.
1: Mr. Holder had cause to be concerned. Two years earlier, the Supreme Court had taken a hammer to the Voting Rights Act. The case, Shelby County v. Holder, bore his name. Today, the Supreme Court could once again be on the verge of gutting the Voting Rights Act and overhauling a slew of decades held principles. And with just three weeks to go to the midterms, lingering cries of a stolen 2020 presidential election pose a real threat to the American system. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how can America's voting system be made more fair? My guest is the former Attorney General, Eric Holder. He was appointed by Barack Obama in 2009 and served for six years. His party lauded him as a champion of civil rights. Republicans criticized him for advancing an unusually progressive agenda for the head of the Justice Department. After leaving office, he became an activist. He leads the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, an organization that campaigns for an end to gerrymandering and for the protection of voting rights. This year, he published a book called Our Unfinished March, in which he argues American democracy itself risks collapse. So what does he think can be done to stop that? Eric Holder, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation.
1: Now, in your book, Our Unfinished March, you write that one person, one vote, is far from being a reality. Why is that? And paint us a brief picture, if you could, of the voting landscape in the US and why you believe
0: it isn't equal. Well, this has been a constant through the history of the United States, a fight for voting rights, a question of whose vote will count, whose voice will be heard. We are dealing with that in the 21st century. We see voter suppression. We see racial and partisan gerrymandering. It's not new, but it has taken on an intensity over the course of the last few years that is quite unfortunate.
1: And in your book, you argue it's not just voting rights that are in danger. It's American democracy. As a whole, you blame institutions for that. And you write this, there's an unrepresentative Senate, an unnecessary and anti-democratic electoral college, a gerrymandered House of Representatives, and a stolen Supreme Court. What is behind this erosion of democracy as you understand it?
0: Well, part of it is structural in the way that our nation was set up. The compromises that the founders had to go through in order to have a constitution to form the United States the compromise so that we have two senators for every state, regardless of the population of those states, which has an impact on the makeup, the fairness of the, the Senate. We have seen two Supreme Court seats stolen by Republicans over the course of the last few years. And we've seen the use of gerrymandering to make sure that one party controls a particular district with regard to our House of Representatives. So we have not only structural problems, we also have things that have been done in recent years to exacerbate those structural problems, which leads to a system that is not truly representative of the will of the people of this country.
1: One of the arguments is that Democrats aren't as good at acquiring and holding on to power and deploying it as Republicans. This has been a very long-standing complaint. Is that a bit like doomsdaying the Democratic case here? I and mean, why not just get better at it?
0: Democrats, I think, just generally have to become more comfortable with the acquisition and the use of power. It doesn't mean that they have to mimic Republicans and do things that I think are inappropriate, um, anti-democracy, but Democrats do have to be willing to, to fight for power and then to use that power in appropriate ways. I think that we're going to see over the course of this decade a Democratic Party that is more willing, that is more comfortable with that acquisition and use of power
1: I was struck by the title of your book, Our Unfinished March. That's a reference to Bloody Sunday. You watched these events unfold on television as a 14-year-old in New York. Fast forward to 2015, and you attended the 50th anniversary of Selma as America's first African-American attorney general. What role did that background play in your career and your life?
0: Oh, it was a a formative thing in my life to see As a young boy, the protests in the South, the reaction of governments in the South to try to deprive African-American citizens of the rights to which they were entitled, simply as citizens, the right to vote, the right to attend higher education institutions. Uh, My sister-in-law was the young African-American woman who integrated the University of Alabama in 1963 when Governor George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door. Uh, to see African Americans deprived of the ability to go to certain facilities, segregated facilities. All of these things had an impact on me as a 14-year-old in the northern part of the United States as I observed this and didn't quite understand why people who looked like me were treated in such an unfair way and really had an impact on me as I decided what is it that I wanted to do with my life. That unfairness has been a guide for me throughout the course of my life. I've always been trying to fight in some form or fashion that unfairness that I first witnessed as a young boy in uh, in New York City.
1: And very understandably so. Nine years ago, you were Attorney General under Barack Obama. The Supreme Court struck down a provision of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that required states with histories of racial discrimination to get federal approval before changing election rules. And that case was Shelby County versus Holder. Your name was on the tin there. It was a huge blow to voting rights. Why was it so damaging? And with hindsight, do you wish that you tackled it differently?
0: I'm not sure that we could have tackled it differently. I mean, I think that we filed appropriate legal papers in the papers that we filed and in the approach that we took. We had behind us the United States Congress that had conducted hearings, talked to witnesses, had thousands of pages of testimony, hundreds of exhibits, all to show that the 1965 Voting Rights Act should be reauthorized, should be deemed constitutional, that there was still the need to have uh, the protections of the 1965 Voting Rights Act put in place. Uh, The Supreme Court, uh, in a 5-4 decision led by Chief Justice Roberts, said that America has changed. And in fact, that is true. America has changed. But America is not yet at the place where it needs to be. And after the Voting Rights Act was essentially gutted by the Shelby County decision, we saw Throughout the country, Republican state legislatures put in place unnecessary restrictions to keep certain people away from the polls, unnecessary photo ID laws, Uh, again, that whole question of racial and partisan gerrymandering, things that if the Shelby County case had come out a different way, the United States Department of Justice would have been able to prevent from happening. That protection was removed by the Shelby County decision and American democracy was negatively impacted and we are still feeling the impact of that 2013 decision in 2022.
1: Well, let's dive into that a bit more in in the present in the Supreme Court and what's going on this month. Hearings began on Merrill v. Milligan. In January, a federal district court found that Alabama's new congressional map, discriminated against black voters, making up about a quarter of the population by including just one black majority district among its seven. And it ordered the legislature to redraw the map. Alabama then appealed, arguing that congressional maps shouldn't take race into consideration. You're supporting the plaintiffs and you believe that if the Supreme Court rules in favour of Alabama, it will weaken protections held by the Voting Rights Act and dilute voter power in minorities. Why is this particularly the cause that you're talking about at the moment or emphasising at the moment?
0: We have a history in Alabama of racially polarized voting. That means that whites tend to vote for whites, African-Americans tend to vote for African-Americans. Section two of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of the remaining provisions of the Voting Rights Act after the Shelby County decision, says that the political power of a protected group, in this case, African-Americans, should not be diluted. And what the Alabama Republican legislature has done in the way in which it drew uh, the lines for the House of Representatives was to dilute that power. African-Americans should have at least two opportunities to elect a congressman of their choice. That would be two African-American congressmen. There are sufficient numbers of African-Americans who are geographically compact so that you could draw these two districts. And for those who say, well, you're injecting race into a system that should be race neutral, I would say that you are ignoring reality here. The Republican state legislature has historically injected race into the way in which they have dealt with the Black population in Alabama, using race to deny African Americans in that state the political power to which they are entitled.
1: Well, that's the case, isn't it? The counter case by the solicitor general Edmund Lecour in Alabama. He says the state is taking a race-neutral approach. You clearly don't agree with him. You've just said why. But what do you make of the strength of his argument?
0: If you were to apply Supreme Court precedent, look at the legislative history of the Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. This case is an easy one for the Supreme Court to decide. The only way that the Supreme Court can find for the defendants, the people who we are suing in this case, is to essentially rewrite or to ignore past precedent and to rewrite or ignore the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This is a case that is squarely within Section 2 of the Act, squarely within the way in which the Supreme Court has previously ruled. I am concerned that a majority on this really radical Supreme Court that we now have, will in fact rewrite the Voting Rights Act or it somehow find the Voting Rights Act to be unconstitutional and do things that are inconsistent with the way in which this nation has ordered itself since 1965. Uh, but this should not be a difficult case for the Supreme Court to resolve.
1: Well, you say since 1965, but what's so interesting here is that it, there are layers and layers behind that, and of course they take us right back in, in American history. And in the Merrill oral argument, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson made a case for race-conscious map drawing under the Voting Rights Act, and that was grounded in what she characterized as the race consciousness of the Reconstruction Amendments. I mean, we are into layers of layers of layers here, but. If I understand it correctly, this is either a reinterpretation of originalism, so the sense that the Constitution's meaning should be understood as it was written, or have we heard this before from Supreme Court justices? And is it likely to persuade those who are of a more conservative bent and take that originalist position on the court?
0: The problem we have is that we have situational originalism. The court, or the conservatives on the court, go to originalism when they want to reach a result. This is a very ideological court, not necessarily a partisan, but they are certainly ideological. Justice Jackson was exactly right. The 14th Amendment to our Constitution, written after the Civil War, takes into account the way in which the newly freed people needed to be protected. These were former slaves. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is directly tied to the 14th Amendment, to those post-Civil War protections. And so Congress, at the end of the Civil War, said that we are going to try to put in place measures to protect the voting rights and other rights of newly freed people. Those measures have been interpreted in a consistent way up until close to the present. And so, yeah, there is an element of race that can appropriately be taken into account in evaluating uh, what happened in Alabama. But the notion of Alabama officials that they are proceeding in a race-neutral way flies in the face of the history of Alabama, flies in the face of what they did just this year with regard to how they drew those districts. Their race-neutral approach has resulted in the dilution of power for a racial group within the state.
1: If the Supreme Court does rule in favor of Alabama, what do you think that will mean for other cases? And I'm thinking here of Moore versus Harper, a case looking at the power of state legislatures in federal elections and that stems from a gerrymandered map drawn to ensure that in North Carolina, where Democrats and Republicans poll evenly in national elections, 10 of 14 congressional districts would go to Republicans.
0: The Moore versus Harper case is is something that is really disturbing. It depends on this thing called the independent state legislature theory, which is really a fringe theory. I mean, I want everybody to understand this is really a fringe theory that essentially says that state legislatures, when it comes to drawing these district lines, have the ability to do so without any involvement of state courts, without any involvement of the governors. This is inconsistent with the American system of checks and balances. The independent state legislature theory would give huge amounts of power to these gerrymandered Republican state legislatures and essentially turn our democracy on its head.
1: You're campaigning for fairer congressional maps uh, in your work at the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Both Democrats and Republicans have benefited at times from gerrymandering. How do you make fairer redistricting a bipartisan effort, given that it's the ultimate area of tit for tat and memories of uh, the other side getting the upper hand through slightly underhand or tricksy methods?
0: Our nation has been afflicted with gerrymandering since its inception. At the NDRC, what we have been fighting for is just a fair system of redistricting, because I think if the system's fair, Democrats will do just fine in the United States. And so it's going to be a difficult fight. Uh, we've had to use the courts, which is why the, the case of Moore versus Harper is so important. We've had to use the courts to try to tell Republican legislatures that they can't do what it is that they have been trying to do, because I think Republicans see the demographic changes in this country. We're going to be a majority non-white country by 2043. We see ideological changes in this country. This country is becoming more left of center than right of center. They see that power is potentially slipping away from them. That, that I
1: have to say, is an interpretation, not a fact that the country is becoming more left. One could say it's got a funny way of showing it.
0: All the polling uh, show people uh, to be more left of center than they, they have been
1: polling ain't voting. I mean, neither in the UK nor in the US, just very briefly to deal with that point.
0: No, well, that's true. That's true. And that's one of the problems that we have in the United States, trying to get these people who are left of center to the polls. A lot of people have become disillusioned with our political system and don't think that their votes matter, especially young people. And so that's one of the things we try to do, is to get young people to the polls in sufficient numbers so that the political reality in this country reflects the policy desires of the the people.
1: Midterms are three weeks away. Recent polling from YouGov showing the economy, abortion and climate change are pressing issues for voters. But only 7% of Americans polled said civil rights is their top concern. How can you convince Americans that voting rights should be a motivating factor to turn out here?
0: Well, we can point back to you know what happened on January the 6th in our country when there was an attempt at essentially a coup to stop the transfer of power and what has happened since that time with regard to the Republican Party. We have election deniers who are running for really critical spots around the nation. About half of the Republican candidates are in fact election deniers. They don't concede that Joe Biden won the election fairly. These are the kinds of arguments that I think that we have to use to try to galvanize people and get them to the polls and make them understand that democracy is on the ballot this November.
1: Congress has been debating new voting rights legislation. It hasn't been able to pass anything. So if you could craft your dream voting rights law, what in essence would it do?
0: It would be a recodification of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, would overrule the Shelby County case, and instead of applying essentially to the old South, would be a Voting Rights Act that would apply to the entirety of the American nation. Because the problems that we see with regard to voting now are not restricted to the South, we also see problems in our northern states, um, in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, legislation that would have been perfect was before this last Congress, but we were unable to get it past the filibuster. We did not get the necessary votes in the United States Senate to make that good law a reality.
1: Well, indeed, and I did want to press you on that. Why do you think Democrats haven't done more at the legislative level to secure voting rights, given your idea that it is so foundational to so many other things that this presidency wanted to put right in America?
0: Yeah it's one of the things I talk about in my book we have now a system by which we on a routine basis have filibusters in, in the United States Senate which requires 60 votes in order to pass any kind of legislation there are only 50 democrats in the United States Senate so there are not sufficient numbers of democrats to pass that which the president would like to put in place in order to do away with the filibuster uh, you need the majority of the senate at least 50 votes to do that and then we had two democratic senators who would not vote to end the filibuster?
1: You believe in fixing America's institutions in order to be able to fix democracy more broadly. But what reforms would you want then to make to Congress and to the Supreme Court? And how likely is that, given that the reforms that you want to make are the ones that the people in charge of the institutions that you want reforming are often resisting, or where the power just seems to end up endlessly regressive? Is there a way? even theoretically, that you could cut through that.
0: Generations of Americans have faced the same problem. And in fact, every generation of Americans has protected our democracy, and it is up to this generation to find ways in which to do that. And the proposals that I've made are, are pretty basic. Limit the number of years that a person can serve on the Supreme Court. We now have life tenure. I say you should serve 18 years do away with the filibuster, ban racial and partisan gerrymandering, have universal voter registration, make election day a holiday so that people don't have to choose between their jobs and their ability to cast a ballot. I have a whole range of proposals in the book. Question is, will we have the political will and will we have the political support in order to put them in place? And I am actually optimistic that over time, much of what I propose will in fact become law.
1: At the start of his presidency, President Biden called for an end to what he called this uncivil war that pits read against Blue. But uh, my colleagues reporting from America noted recently that the language in the president's speeches has become a lot harsher when he's talking about Republicans and he uses terms like MAGA Republicans. He's likened their philosophy to semi-fascism. Is he at risk of making saving democracy a Democrat project rather than an all-American one?
0: No, I think what the president is trying to do is to appeal to those Republicans who don't believe in the whole make America great again, the whole MAGA philosophy. And there are substantial numbers of Republicans there in the party who I think are, in fact, in that camp. If you couple those Republicans with Democrats, you have the really majority of the people in this country. And that would allow for the kinds of changes that we have been discussing today. I think that if you look at you know, MAGA Republicans, you're talking about maybe a third of the population. That's a substantial number of people. But that also means that about 67 percent of the people in this country reject the authoritarian leanings of the MAGA Republicans led by Donald Trump.
1: Well, Hang on a minute. I mean the former President Donald Trump does have a grip on the party, and I'm always a bit worried about having to appeal to polling for the entire country. Well, what often matters is what is your grip on the machinery of a party that is running for office. Many Republican candidates have seen his endorsement as essential to victory. If Republicans take control of the House and uh, our modeling at The Economist suggested that they might well do that, what will that mean for election denial?
0: Well, I'm concerned about election deniers who will take important state positions as well as important federal positions. And it's true that in the Republican Party as it now exists in 2022, you probably need to have the support of Donald Trump in order to win a primary so that you can get your name on the general election and run against your Democratic opponent. I think the only way in which that changes is for Republicans to suffer a a series of electoral defeats. And that's why I think you saw the change in language by President Biden. That reality, this notion of us just coming together, is not really going to happen. There has to be a defeat of the MAGA part of the Republican Party. And the way to do that is to defeat them at the polls.
1: Well, then that is the uncivil war that he said he didn't want to engage in. I mean it, obviously, in a rhetorical sense.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call it an uncivil war as much as as I would call it the ultimate expression of democracy, where the people decide the direction of the nation, the policies of the nation, and turn their backs, hopefully, on the authoritarian leanings of a substantial part of the Republican Party.
1: At the final hearing of the January the 6th committee, the panel called for Donald Trump to be subpoenaed. The former president is legally obliged to submit himself to questioning, but it's highly likely that he will refuse. What should the Justice Department do in that eventuality? Merrick Garland, the attorney general, could pursue criminal charges, but that is obviously an escalatory route. What would you do if you were still the attorney general?
0: I think these things are actually on parallel routes. The January 6th committee has done a great service by exposing what happened on January the 6th. We now understand the depth and the breadth of that conspiracy and people need to be held accountable the lead up to it and what happened after January the 6th. I think Merrick Garland, who I've known for, I don't know, 20, 25 years at this point, is gonna have a decision to make based on the evidence that the January 6th committee has elicited and that which the Justice Department undoubtedly is doing through the use of grand juries and the use of the FBI. He's gonna make a decision as to whether or not Donald Trump should be indicted for his role in leading up to the January 6th coup attempt, But Donald Trump faces also the real possibility of being indicted in Fulton County in Atlanta for what he tried to do in Georgia when he called the Secretary of State there and said, find me 11,780 votes so that he might win the state. So I think the former president faces indictment not only federally, but also in the state system in Georgia.
1: You talk about American democracy being in decline. Where do you see most hope that it can be repaired? And where do you think that your efforts most likely to pay off?
0: I think that there is a growing awareness in the American people that our system, that we have taken for granted for too long, is under threat, and that we have to become more civically engaged if we want to hold on to the democracy that we treasure. I see it as I go around the country, particularly among young people. Young women and young men are galvanized, moved by the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and a whole range of other things that I think are moving people to become more focused on government, more focused on voting. That's where I find myself optimistic, because I think over time, the American people will right our system of government and our democracy that is headed in the wrong direction.
1: Eric Holder, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And do let us know what you think. Where do Democrats need to focus their attention to make votes count more equally? And is there really any hope for bipartisanship when it comes to fixing electoral systems? Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. You can read more about the twists and turns of America's midterm elections on our website. There you'll find our model which provides an up-to-date statistical forecast of the race to control Congress. And our daily podcast, The Intelligence, has been zipping across the states to bring you the stories shaping the midterms. This week, John Fassman was in Rhode Island, asking voters how worries about inflation might influence their vote. Find that episode wherever you get your podcasts. To get access to all of our journalism, though, you'll need to become a subscriber. We've got a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alessia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling Condon. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.